Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the show. Okay, here's what we got on tap for tonight. I'm going to talk about the Evolve lawsuit, uh, AlphaGo against Lee Sodol, current state of the primaries, current state of the UFC, a little about Ghostbusters, and a little bit about Anita Sarkeesian. That's what's on tap for this evening. Now, um, before I get started, my first topic is going to be the Evolve lawsuit. Um. I decided to do this uh, very last minute uh, simply because I'm undereducated on the subject and I think just about everyone else is as well. In order to understand this kind of stuff, uh, it, patent law is complicated. Uh, that said, if anyone out there is sufficient, I, I'm not, I doubt anyone out there is a patent lawyer, but if anyone has a lot, some information on this, you're welcome to call in. It'll probably be an education for me as much as the rest of the audience. Uh, yeah, perhaps I was a bit lazy on this, but I do have two cents. Not much more than that. Maybe a nickel. Anyway, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start with that. I haven't hit this one in a while. So what to say about the Evolve lawsuit? Well, let's let's go back a little bit. Let's go back in time just a little bit. Uh, I was first made aware of Evolve. I think it was 2010. It was it was probably in the fall of 2010. I remember seeing uh, the Darwin for the first time. Um, Drew from Inhaler, rest in peace, had one. We were at a uh, meetup in uh in manhattan at the silver spurs diner on broadway and he had one and then showed it to me now obviously this was the first variable wattage product that ever existed and i looked at it and used it and was uh, immediately impressed now keep in mind this thing gosh i don't remember exactly what it went to if i had to guess it was 12 point something probably 12.7 watts or something like that so it was by any standards today, no heavy hitter in terms of what it, but at the time, 12.7 watts was, you know, very few people even used it that high. People were using it at eight, nine watts, but it was doing something that had never been done before. Uh, regulating the voltage output on the device based upon the current state of the atomizer and sampling it um, ostensibly hundreds or thousands of times a second and, and pr providing a consistent vape in a way that wasn't available before. So it was, uh, I was very impressed by it. Um, I was very impressed by it for about 30 seconds. Uh, the electronics were, were at the time brilliant and revolutionary, but then I noticed that the thing that you screw your atomizer into would move. 
In other words, you could fold it down, uh, which at the time didn't really provide any, you know, that that's a good thing. It made the device shorter, I suppose, even though it was rather long to begin with. But uh, at the time, people were mostly using dripping atomizers, uh, not rebuildable dripping as atomizers, but, you know, just ones that you screw on, you know, 510, old school 510 atomizers that very few people use anymore. So, you know, those things tend to, it, it didn't provide a lot of functional advantage, in my opinion, having a, a moving part on it. And as soon as I used it, I said, that is the best vape I ever had. And I will never buy one ever because moving parts on electronics, particularly when you're using something with liquid that spills is not a good idea. And it wasn't a good idea. It was a terrible idea. From an electronic perspective, it was brilliant. And I knew at the time that, you know, it would change vaping forever. And it certainly did, though it took a little bit longer than I than I thought. Um, now, everything today is variable wattage. That took a while to catch on, but catch on it did. And this product, this concept was invented uh, by Brandon from Evolve uh, and deserves a lot of credit for it. And, you know, since then, you know, the products that he makes, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's, as far as I know, I don't follow vaping devices as much as I used to, but as far as I know, Evolve isn't making any uh, actual devices. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, mostly they're selling chips and licensing their technology, et cetera, et cetera. So they have, they do have a patent on variable wattage. Now, like I said at the top of the show, um, this is a, a lawsuit involving a patent. Patents are extremely complicated. Um, it's my understanding that he is suing or Evolve is suing the California, uh, the California office or the California, whatever company of of Joy, um, and several products are named from other companies that are also owned by Joy. Okay, so because I, I, as far as I know, as as complicated as patent law is, once you actually try to sue a Chinese company, it's uh, even more difficult and more complicated. So it, here, here, here's the deal. Coming from, and this is, I will fully admit, I this was a last-minute decision for me to, to, to do this on the show. I'm just going to give you a rather lazy opinion on this, uh, simply because I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to read the suit. I'm not going to take, my, take the time to educate myself on patent law, because that's, that's a fool's errand. Uh, just the way I feel about it, which is normally not the way I... I, I do things, but I'm going to do it this time. Uh, I hope Brandon wins. Why? Because I like him. Brandon is an American entrepreneur, an American innovator. Uh, if you, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting him several times, and he's a hell of a nice guy. Uh, do I think... Now, if I thought for a minute that by Evolve winning this lawsuit it would make it a lot harder to get decently priced variable wattage product i probably wouldn't change my mind because that even though that wouldn't be a great thing for vapors again i don't think it would be true but even if it was true um yeah it might suck for vapors but at the end of the day the law is the law and ethics are ethics so i've talked about you know, I remember when Hannah, Hannah Mods sued the, you know, the companies that were making 
the clones of their devices that had their logo on it. And I said it was stupid for them to do that. You know, I was probably wrong about that. I don't know what the fallout was following that. I have no idea. I'm not that interested. Uh, I was probably wrong about that. There, there really is something to say about somebody who actually creates something and then somebody who completely rips them off. Did Joy do that? I don't know. Probably. I mean, what does China do best? They, they take they take something that somebody's done, they reverse engineer the fuck out of it, and then they put out a product that's initially terrible, and then it grows a little bit, and then by version two point something, it's pretty fucking good. Um, I wish I had more to say about this other than I just hope Brandon wins because I like him and I like his company and I like what he's done for the industry, but I don't know that I need that much more. Um, you know what? You know, it's big. This is big business. You know, back in that diner in 2010, you know, this this, this industry was just the fledgling little thing that we didn't know if it was going to make it to, you know, the next week with what was going on. Now it's big business. These are big companies in China making stuff. And if they are legitimately knocking them off in a way that's illegal by the laws that we have in this country, then I say he's got whatever the judge says he has coming. I don't even know. Does this thing go to jury? Who knows? Um, so that's really all I have to say. Uh, Brandon, Brandon, all the, all the best, all, all the luck with us. You're a hell of a guy. And, and I hope you win. I, I've got no love for, for companies that knock other, knock other people's off idea without giving them their, uh, they're due comeuppance. Okay. Okay. And uh, we're now at 9.32, and that will be the conclusion of Vaping Topics for the night. I want to talk about two very different sports, uh, UFC and Go. Let's talk about UFC first. More of you are probably familiar with what's going on. First of all, this sport just keeps getting better and better. The events that they're putting on are consistently just world-class fighting. And it's, you know, this this last UFC was probably the best I've seen in, in a long time. Obviously, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that Conor McGregor fought Nate Diaz in a last minute, pretty much pretty much like a catchweight kind of fight, non-title fight. And it was the first time for Holly Holm to defend her championship belt against the challenger since beating Ronda Rousey just a few months ago. This time fighting Misha Tate, who has, uh, um, I believe, was the, the former bantamweight champion until, until uh, Rousey took the title and then beat her again. I believe that's what happened. I'm, I'm, uh, as much as I love the UFC, I am not the type of fan that can that consumes every single um, what you call. I I don't. They put out so much content. Um, you know, I got a friend who who consumes everything that they put out. They got reality shows. They got smaller fights. I'm basically there for the big fights. That's, you know, I'm a casual fan until, you know, two weeks before a big fight. And then I read everything and I, I watch the stupid, you know, weigh-ins. I, you know, I, I get really into it for like two weeks every three months. Okay. That's, that's the kind of fan I am. And I think that's a valuable fan uh, for the UFC. I think that's the best way to grow and I think they've been doing it very well because every fight, you know, you get these people who are casually involved who are actually willing to pay for it. I mean, these things cost money. Yeah, sometimes if it's not like a huge event, I just find some website that happens to have it for free, which is not legal, but whatever. I sit at home, um, you know, with an, 
with a beer and I watch it in front of my computer and that and that's that. But you know, when a fight's big enough, a few friends will get together and we'll chip in and we'll actually pay for the fight because then we can, you know, we watch or you know, these internet streams are not known for their reliability and they're choppy and they got all those ads. The it's not a, exactly a pleasant experience, but if I'm going to do that versus pay fifty dollars for it, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the lower quality and the annoyingness. But when the when you know the fight rates to be really good, am I willing to pay for it? Yeah, get together with some friends, watch a fight, sure. And that was just one of the things about this fight. Just watching it, you know, but both fights really, you know, there were a bunch of undercard events. Some of them were all right. Some of them were really unremarkable. But the but the headline fights. I mean, even the, even the women's fight, the, the women's fights have sometimes been better than men's in, in, in the past uh, in the past year or two. But the, the women's fight, let's start there. Um, I'm pretty good at scoring these things. I mean, they use a 10-point system in UFC, which is the same 10-point system they use as boxing. Eh, that's a mistake. It's stupid. Uh, it's, you know, the 10-point the system works fine for boxing. It doesn't work fine for UFC, and I think it's. I think they just need to get rid of it because it does not. They, they first of all, they're very reluctant to score rounds at ten eight. Almost every round is scored at ten nine. That said, I did score one of the rounds as ten eight for Misha Tate, and I was very surprised when I saw the judges' scorecards that all three judges agreed. That's rare, uh, and it's a good thing that UFC judges are willing to score ten fight, uh, uh, ten eight fights. 10-8 rounds, I should say, because uh, in the past they've been reluctant to do so. You really need to because there is just this concept of dominance that is much more prominent in UFC than it is in boxing. Boxing is something where you have flurries and then you have clinches and then you have knockdowns. It is uh, much more two-dimensional than UFC is where there are so many more ways to harm your opponent, to dominate the fight because there is just so many more, there are so many more things, pardon me, there are so many more things that you can do that are legal. Um, when someone gets knocked down in boxing, you got to run to your corner and wait. And this takes up, you know, quite a bit of time off of the clock, off of an already relatively short uh, one and a half minute round, where is in, in, uh, in UFC, you have these grueling five, five minute rounds, sometimes in the championship fights or in the headline fights, five minutes of five five actual rounds so you it's it's a grind so anyway i don't that's just my take on the on the on the point system i think it's stupid uh they need to change it to something that rewards actual actual dominance and and pain and 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 the, the things that just don't exist in the same ways in boxing all right moving on from that i had scored the fight it turned out i had scored the fight exactly the same as the other three judges uh, despite the fact that Tate did get a two-point round, a 10-8 round, every other round I had scored was 10-9 home. So going into the last round, it was kind of interesting in that all home needed to do was just play defense. Um, all she needed to do was just stay away, avoid takedowns, because the only way that Misha Tate was going to win that fight was with a submission. And Holm should have known that. I would think she knew that. Her corner should have known that. I, you know, they're not they're not getting you know punched in the face twenty times. So they you know they, they should have the clarity of knowing that and telling the fighter, listen, even if you lose this round, 
on points. The draw that the, the fight will end in a draw and you will retain your belt. Now, not the most glamorous way to win, but it's still a draw that will result in you keeping your title. Now, going into that final round, the fifth round, um, towards the beginning, so the, the, the road to victory or to a draw, which is also a victory, is incredibly simple. Um, in theory, uh, Not, I'm not saying it's easy to stand there for five minutes, uh, you know, with Misha Tate, Misha Tate trying to, you know, get you on the ground and, you know, choke you to, <laughs> choke you to uh, unconsciousness, which is obviously what, choke you to unconsciousness, which is obviously what happened. Um, but it is clear that she wasn't, uh, home, that is, was not really trying to do that. Uh, she got out into a lead. I, I had the round scored at 10-9 home, and it obviously was. She was generally staying away. I mean, all she really did needed to do was three things. Uh, stay away, move. She's She moves as well as anyone, cutting off uh, cutting off angles and cutting off the ring. So move, leg kicks. As many as, anytime you can land a leg kick, do it. Otherwise, just don't attack. Stay back and counterpunch. She's the best counterpuncher in the business. If she had done that, and she was for the first two and a half minutes of the fight, of, of the round, I should say. And she was ahead on, on points as, as a result. Uh, Tate knows that it doesn't matter how many times she gets hit as long as it's not something that's going to knock her out. She just needs to get close enough so that she can uh, attempt a takedown. And then Holm got very sloppy and started becoming aggressive as, uh, as, the, as half of the round had expired. And this was a huge mistake. There was just no need for it. All she had to do was go on cruise control, and the fight was hers. She would have won and retained her belt. But she decided to get a little bit aggressive, start taking the initiative, and of course, now Tate was able to counter her aggression with a takedown, which was successful, which led her, I mean, Holly Holm didn't even tap out. She just got choked out. She got choked out unconscious, and I give her some credit for being tough enough to really try to get out of it, but she should have known that it was uh, virtually uh, impossible. Now, getting uh, choked into unconsciousness is actually not, it's not a great thing for your brain, but it's not nearly as bad as a massive concussion. So I don't I don't think she really suffered any long-lasting uh, brain injury because of it. That, that said, it's not good for you. Anyway, that doesn't matter. It's a shame to see her lose. Um, I was rooting for her. Uh, she, I, I became a big fan of her, just her... Um, her poise as a fighter, her I mean, she was, you know, going up against Ronda Rousey, who was just a raging pit bull. And the the fact that she was able to keep her cool and after the fight, you know, just not only just in the ring immediately after, she was showing some concern, which I believe was extremely genuine, because she knows exactly how hard she kicked her in the head, or kicked her in the jaw, I should say. She knew that she wouldn't be in good shape. So I think she was showing uh, immediate concern in the ring, which I don't think I, I think was genuine and I think very classy. And following the bout was equally as classy, just, you know, taking the high road, even while, you know, Ronda Rousey was being a, a complete crybaby about the whole thing. She was she was a classy champion for the short time that she was. So I was I was sorry to see her go so quickly. And, you know, I think in a rematch, I think I I think that, you know, that forget about what Vegas does. Vegas always gives the always gives the defending champion a few points uh, on the spread. But I, I would put home as a favorite because 
you know, I think she knew that she just kind of gave away the fight. She didn't need to do what she did. All she needed to do was shift into cruise control. Not saying that's easy, but taking the initiative was a huge, huge mistake in the in the fight. I mean, she had to do it early in the fight. You can't just lay back and counterpunch the whole fight. Judges will not like that. But she uh, she earned the right to do that in the last two minutes and did the opposite and lost. Now, the McGregor fight, this was uh, just as a very, very brief recap for those of you that didn't really follow what was going on coming up into the fight. The UFC did something they've never done before in that after Conor won the belt, allowed him to challenge, to, to not defend that belt, but rather go up into a higher weight class and immediately challenge uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, who was the champion in the 155-pound weight division. He won uh, quite fairly. He went through the entire 145-pound uh, weight division, just slaughtered everyone, just really dominant performances. Undefeated in UFC, although he did have a couple of losses uh, in MMA in Ireland, which was not part of the UFC, but that was a long time ago. He's been dominant for a long time and earned that belt, plain and simple. But it's pretty unprecedented to just say, okay, you don't have to defend it, and you can just go right up into another weight class. And that's because, you know, if he was just any other fighter, they probably would have never allowed it. But because he's Conor McGregor, and he makes more money for the UFC than anybody today, because he is just so good at promotion, and he is so good at getting people to watch what he says in between fights that people pay to watch him fight. They want to see if the, if he can live up to the hype, and up until now he had. Now, what happened right before the fight was, and this was like less than two weeks before the fight. I think it was closer to a week, actually. The man he was challenging for the, one, for the 155 belt, Rafael Dos Anjos, apparently broke his foot in training. So he would not be able to fight. This is something that's happened to McGregor twice before, where he had to uh, a couple times where he had to where he had to wait because someone got injured, and it sucks, you know, because everyone wants to see a title fight. Everyone, and it would have been the first time ever in the UFC that someone would have held two belts in two different weight classes. That just has never happened before in UFC. This is something that's happened before in boxing, but it is uh, it would have been a first. So that sucked, but. The UFC went out and started asking other people who would take the fight. And, you know, most of the answers they got were no. And for good reason. Uh, these, you know, you've got somebody at the top of their game who's been training for months. And now you're asking guys who are either not actively training for a fight or just got over a last. You know, the, the field was rather thin, actually, of people who were actually in the condition to take the fight. Uh, Nate Diaz, who was very, very loud and uh, insistent that he gets a fight at, uh, a crack at McGregor, uh, accepted the fight, but pardon me, slice of Sicilian I had for, uh, for lunch isn't sitting well. <laughs> anyway, um, Nate Diaz, who's a much larger guy, said, I'll take the fight, but I'm not taking it at 155. I'll take it at 165. Now, keep in mind, the last time McGregor fought, it was at 145. Now, he's been training for a fight at 155. Well, that fell apart. You got somebody who's willing to take the fight, and he says, I'll do it, but I'll only do it at 165. Now, the rational thing for him to do 
would have been, okay, let's compromise. I'll do it at 160. And I guarantee you Diaz would have accepted because fighting Conor McGregor, win or lose, it's just, it's going to be a big, a big payday, you know? And he could use it. I mean, who couldn't? But he could really use it. Uh, so he would have accepted at 160, but that's not what McGregor did. He didn't even say, okay, fine, let's do it at 165. He said, fuck it, let's do it at 170. So you have a fighter who the last time he stepped into the ring was fighting or training for 145. And now, in this fight, he's suddenly going to switch from training for 155 and with a little, just barely over a week, is now going to be fighting at 170. Now, maybe maybe there is some small advantage for him in that the weight cut becomes something you don't even have to worry about, but it becomes something that Diaz doesn't really have to worry about either so that, you know, they never weigh them when they're right at the, the ring. They, they weigh them the day before, and then they're able to put on a bunch of weight. Now, if they were weighing, weighing in at 170, McGregor's not really going to put on that much more. He's going to put on, I don't know, eight pounds at the most. Diaz at 170 can put on 20. He probably put on somewhere between 15 and 20 pounds. So you got, you know, standing in the ring, you've got a, hu a huge difference between the two guys. At least 10 pounds, I think. That's not good. You don't want that. And nobody asked him for that. Nobody asked him for 170. They asked him for 165. He probably could have made the fight work at 160. He definitely could have made the fight, the fight go at 160. And it would have been a much more even fight. Instead... 170, which nobody asked for. And what is this a, as a result of hubris? The guy just thought he was a god. He thought he was invincible, and he thought it just didn't matter. He said, I don't care how big he is. I can knock him the fuck out. I don't care what, how much we weigh. And he was wrong. Now, if you watch that first round, uh, it was brutal. I mean, McGregor dismantled him, you know, bleeding profusely, Tons of brutal shots to the face, to the liver. Um, excellent straight kicks, although his uh, his wheel kicks were not working at all. But uh, you know, clearly a ten nine round for McGregor. I mean, no one would no one would disagree with that. I don't think it was I don't think it was ten eight, but I think it was a ten nine round. Uh, second round started out. He was also you know doing great and just smacking the fuck. But you know what? Any of those any of those punches against anyone. In the 145 class, uh, weight class, that fight was over in the first round. The fight was over in less than half of the first round. Nobody at 145 pounds can take that abuse, period. But now we're talking about a guy, a big guy at 170, and who just happens to be a really tough motherfucker. Nate Diaz uh, has an incredible jaw. He can get hit, and he keeps going. And Connor, he was hurt. Connor had him hurt. But then he got he got punched in the face by somebody who's an eight, 182 pounds. He got punched in the face hard, and it rocked him. Um, that is the hardest that Conor McGregor got punched in the face in his entire life. Full stop. He has never been hit that hard before in his life. Uh, maybe when he was a kid, maybe when he was growing up and just beginning in the UFC, sure, or beginning with a mixed martial arts, sure. But since then, since he's been in the UFC, no. He has never gotten hit that hard. And boy, did it rock him. And he could, and Diaz could tell. Diaz started slapping him in the face. He got two, two shots where he could have punched him. That He just smacked him in the face. 
a couple of times just to say, look, I, <laughs> you're done, buddy. I'm just going to fucking toy with you a little bit. Um, McGregor, I'm sure at this point was panicking, um, very foolishly attempted a, a, a takedown of Diaz. Not a good idea. Diaz is an accomplished, uh, Diaz uh, prefers to fight on his feet, but he is a black belt in jujitsu. Uh, McGregor is not. And, uh, once it came to the bottom, once it came to the ground, I mean, it was just, it was just nasty. Uh, it, it wasn't. The beginning of that takedown wasn't extremely technical, and it didn't need to be. Connor was hurt. He didn't know what to do. Diaz just got on top of him and started slamming him in the face, just just in a just a just towering over him, had him pinned to the ground and just smashing him in the face. Uh, McGregor did not do what his training told him to do. He did what his instincts told him to do, which was to cover up. And in doing so, gave Diaz his back. And then from there, it was relatively easy for uh, Diaz to punch his face into the right position so that he could get his arm under him and uh, get a, a rear naked choke on him. And it was, you know, McGregor knew at that point it's over. And he wisely tapped very quickly. He wasn't, you know, what Holm did, frankly, was rather foolish. I mean, you know, McGregor... Um, actually got out of the fight without, you know, I'm not saying that, that that one punch that really rocked him didn't hurt him, it did, but other than that and the couple of hits he took on the ground, he wasn't really that hurt. That choke did not hurt him because he tapped immediately, which was a smart thing for him to do. Anyway, getting back to just, uh, that's all the, the my, you know, casual UFC fan appraisal of, of what technically happened in the ring. Something very different was happening when I was watching it with all my buddies at my friend's place on the pay-per-view. You know, every second of both those rounds was exciting. There was never a dull moment. Screaming and yelling. We're drinking. We're eating. We're, we've got this, this adrenaline going through our blood just from watching what you know one way or the other is going to be a historic fight, there is nothing like it. And it's something that, sadly, you cannot really get from any other sport. The days of that happening and boxing, I'm not saying they're gone, but I'm saying, you know, boxing at best can produce that kind of a fight night. You know, you chilling with your buddies, having, you know, beer and wings and just fucking kicking back, and you can't even sit in your seat. It's so fucking exciting. You get that from boxing at best once every 18 months. At best can boxing produce that kind of a product. The UFC seems to be able to put it out every three months. And that moment when, you know, when, when McGregor got rocked that first time, we were all on our feet. Regardless of who you were cheering for, we were all on our feet, going crazy. We couldn't. I couldn't even hear the broadcast. We everyone was yelling and screaming so loud. And I'm ta I'm only talking about a half a dozen guys. I'm not talking about. Yeah, you know, it was relatively small gathering of friends, and we were going crazy, and it was beautiful. It was just a beautiful night, bonding between friends, having fun, eating, drinking, and watching the highest level of professional fighting that's available on the planet. It was 
fucking beautiful. I was buzzing about it the whole the, the whole rest of the night, just buzzing about it. You know? And it wasn't beer. It was just the adrenaline and just just knowing that you've witnessed something great. It was fucking unbelievable. And shit, what a had a trip in five bucks, you know? That beats the movies any day, huh? Shit, with the movie. Last time I saw a movie, they're, they're, they're getting like $18 now for a movie these days. Fuck that. Um, Moving to what would have to be the exact opposite of the UFC would be Go. Now, Go is a game that's existed the better part of 3,000 years. Started in China about that long ago. Uh, this is a game that I've never actively played, but always knew about, just in terms of just the complexity of the game. It was something I was always aware of. I've always known how to, not always, I've, I've known how to play for a while, but I don't play it. I mean, it's uh, it's not a popular game in the West. It is incredibly popular in Asia. Uh, it's almost like they're, it's their chess, you know? The the popularity of chess in America and Russia um, is roughly equivalent to the popularity of Go in Asia. So what's special about Go? Um, what's special about it, just in terms of artificial intelligence, is that it is a game that no one thought. If you had said a year ago, just a year ago, that there would be a computer who could beat a top five human Go player. Everyone, not just professional, you know, the people who, who know Go, but even anyone in the artificial intelligence community would say that that is a ludicrous statement and that you're probably looking at the better part of 10 years for that to actually happen. So... What happened? How did the, how did this happen? Well, and first of all, just just a little bit more about Go. I mean, you could. Um, it, what's what's what makes it so different than other games that have been solved by uh, by artificial intelligence, or or that artificial intelligence could beat the best players in the world? Obviously, everyone knows about chess. That was beaten nineteen ninety seven. I mean, a long time ago. In terms of in terms of how fast computers grow up these days, yeah. Uh, 1997 is, you know, it's, 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 if you put it into a generational perspective for computers, you're talking about, you know, 50 generations ago or more. The, the, the rack of servers that was needed to power Deep Blue, which was the machine made by IBM to be Kasparov in 1997, um, you could fit in a phone today. So, or, you know, from a technological perspective, you know, we're talking about, at the time, the biggest computer company in the world throwing everything that it had in terms of machines that were able to perform the brute force mathematics needed to uh, let Deep Blue win. And Deep Blue didn't, oh, it won, but it wasn't, it, it was close. And IBM very cowardly 
decline the rematch that they had previously agreed to. So, you know, since then, um, chess artificial intelligence engines have, have leapfrogged many, many times over the Deep Blue machine that IBM put out. And uh, if Deep Blue was to come out of uh, the museum that it's in now and tried to face any of these current-day artificial intelligence engines, it would be a joke. Uh, it, it, it couldn't possibly compete. But at the time, it it used a method that that worked. It's not the optimal method, as we know now, after a couple of decades have gone by. They didn't even need a couple of decades, but uh, a combination of brute force brute force mathematics and neural networks makes a chess engine much stronger. But that's really all they needed to get that one win, and then you know lock it up in a museum. It worked well enough for them to beat the world champion. Um. So then what artificial intelligence sought to do was, well, let, you know, I think before, uh, it would have to be before chess, checkers was the was one of the first games to, to be beaten by, uh, by a computer, but checkers is not that complicated. Um, the number of, the number of positions on a board, the, the, the general strategy is, um, is much, much more plain than chess. Chess now you've got many different pieces that can move differently. You have concepts uh, about controlling areas of the of, of the board that are more important. It's a more complex game than checkers by quite a bit. But then, so th they said, okay, well, chess has been beaten. You know, maybe not that convincingly, but, it, you know, the top player in the world lost. Okay, fine. So let's move on. So what did they try to do next? They tried to do backgammon. Um Backgammon in the late '90s has had fallen quite a bit from its, uh, you know, biggest popularity in the late '70s. But it was still a, a game that computers couldn't play very well, and they tried uh, they tried to take the same approach of brute force mathematics with backgammon as they did with chess. One would think that a game that is much more mathematical and probability based backgammon than chess that this would work it did not um brute force mathematics engines failed miserably at playing backgammon because while math is important in backgammon it almost it, it, it math is immediately important in backgammon and this is this is the game i can i can talk about backgammon better than any other game i've studied backgammon for the better part of 10 years, I've read, I've read no less than a half a dozen books on backgammon. It's, it's, it's the game I've studied more than any other, even more than poker. Uh, so I, I, I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Math and backgammon is immediately important. And by that, I mean the next two moves or maybe three moves, it's useful to work out the math. But beyond three moves... It's not important because the variability is simply too great. In chess, it is absolutely useful to use brute force math that a computer is very good at to figure out the next 20 moves and how they're likely to play out. Because what you do, you make a move, it's relatively easy to also anticipate your opponent's likely responses and then map out those most likely responses, you know, into like a Monte Carlo tree where you're, you, you can have a good idea of what's going to happen 20 moves down the line 
and from all of those options, pick out what's the best thing to do. It's completely useless to map out the next 20 moves in backgammon, and no one would bother doing it because there's so much volatility. Um, I love backgammon. You know, I, I tried chess when I was a kid, and it just wasn't for me. I read Bobby Fischer, and it just it, it's a game that never worked for me. Uh, backgammon, something that I always loved playing with my mother, and continue the 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 Art Deco board that she that she had. From, I think she got it when she worked at the Time Life Building in uh, in the sixties. This beautiful board still gets used many times a week, um, and it, it's just it's my game. I love it. Um, the game just always worked for me, and when it, when I began to study it, um, I am weak in math. I am not. I am not. I'm actually. I'm at, in in terms of my math intelligence. I'm I'm substantially lower than the general population. I have a lot of problems doing math in my head, uh, but I have an excellent memory. So backgammon was like a blessing to me in that it's a, it's a game that relies on probability and math that is not great for me, but I have an excellent memory. I have a ridiculously, ridiculously good memory. So I just memorized all the math. It was easy for me. I've done the same thing in poker, which is it's even easier to memorize all the math in poker. Um, it, well, certain games, the games I play. Um, but in backgammon, I just took the time to memorize all the all the most frequently pop, uh, the most frequently occurring things where I needed to figure something out. I know I don't have to do the math. I just know what it is. So, um, uh, getting back to the artificial intelligence engines. Using brute force was was useless. Unless the machines could really understand the positions from back in backgammon from an from an aesthetic perspective, because backgammon is a very aesthetic game. Um, when in doubt in backgammon, you make the move that looks the prettiest. Because for whatever reason, pretty moves are almost always the right moves. It's hard to it's hard to explain unless you've played the game. But if 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 you play, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The game as it as it continues on, it's particularly when you're moving into a prime formation in the outfield into your home board, and then moving into your home board, you want your checkers to look nice. You don't want jagged you don't want jagged primes where you have a bunch of checkers lined up on the front of the prime. It looks ugly and it plays poorly. You want a nice wave like fashion to sweep from the back of your prime into the front of your prime and then crush your opponent. But it's hard to teach a computer what's pretty, what looks good to the human eye. Um, this is not a concept that computers are very good at understanding. So what did they do? They said, let's throw out all the brute force math. It's very easy to teach uh, a computer the, the math and the probability needed for the next one, two, or three moves in backgammon, that's like you know you can get you can get a high school student to write that program to figure out the math. There's not much to it. So instead, we'll take that little bit of math and we'll combine it with a neural network. And this is the first time a neural network was used uh, to be uh, used in a in a table game with complete information. Um, backgammon, chess, Go, checkers. These are games of complete information. That is. Both players can see everything that's happening. There is nothing concealed. Something where a, a game that would be partial information would be poker. In Texas Hold'em, 
You have partial information, the cards that are on the board, and then you have concealed information, the two cards that you have in your hand that only you know, and the two cards in all of your opponent's hand that only they know. So that's a completely different situation. And we'll talk a little bit about poker and, and artificial intelligence uh, after we talk about Go. Uh, but in this game of complete information, backgammon, they said, let's do a neural network approach. Now, what does that mean? Essentially what it is, is they just told the computer to play itself. They didn't tell the computer anything. They didn't say, this point is really, is really important. Like, for example, the five point in backgammon. The five point on both sides of the board is incredibly powerful, incredibly important that you get one or get two. And there is a great deal. There's, there's hundreds of, well, really thousands of years of theory, but really it's only, it's, it's only been, it's, it's, it's only come to, backgammon players have only known truly how powerful the five point is in the last 30 years. And keep in mind, backgammon is the oldest game in the world. It's, you know, twice as old as Jesus. We're talking over 4,000 years old, right? And only in the last 30 years did people finally realize how important that five point is. But how do you, they, they didn't even bother telling the computer how important the five point is. They just said, just play yourself. And so it did. And the computer, without knowing anything about strategy and only knowing that little bit about math that would help you in the next couple of rolls, began to play itself. Pardon me. And play itself it did. Hundreds, thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times, just again and again. You may remember uh, the movie, Bo uh, the, the movie uh, what was it called, with uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, the, the, he was a hacker, uh, War Games, where the computer that wanted to play a game of thermonuclear war, um, you know, ultimately that they were doing a neural network artificial intelligence engine, you know, before there was even a name for it. That's what the computer was doing. It was playing tic-tac-toe or thermonuclear war against itself hundreds of thousands of times and, you know, deciding that there just could never be a winner in either of the games, you know, or, you know, whoever goes first, the tic-tac-toe is going to win, obviously. So that's what the backgammon engine, and there were several of them, they started to do, just play itself over and over and over again. What happened? The computer learned how to play backgammon really well without a human telling it anything about the game, how it works, what's valuable, what's stupid, all that stuff. The computer figured it out on its own just by playing it hundreds of thousands of times and remembering, now having all that data available to it, you know, building up a database basically, knowing that when it has a, a you know a, a decision to make where it's either making that five point or doing a lo loose hit in the in the outfield, they know the right thing to do because they've seen it so many hundreds of thousands of times before, and they know that given the choice, what the chances of winning the game are. Right? The engines then, once it had this huge database of moves and knowing what generally happens in the game, then the top players were able to come in and tell the the programmers how to put different weights on things and you know make the make the programs even better but the 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 uh all of the all of the hard work had already been done by those hundreds of thousands of games that the game that the that the computer played against itself and backgammon fell quickly um after the neural network was pr you know proved to be an effective 
way to beat the top players um, in backgammon. It's the the top chess player in the world has only actually probably well the top chess player in the world has no chance of beating the engines that are out there today. Just zero. It's literally zero. Um, other than a power failure, the human is going to lose. Pretty much same with backgammon. Um, if you make the match long enough, um, it's generally accepted while, you know, when humans play in the World Championship, they're playing a 25-point match. Uh, the variance is still fairly high in that kind of a situation. But if you take a 100-point match, uh, the top human player versus the top uh, art artificial intelligence backgammon player, you make a 100-point match, there's no human that can win. It just even Nack Ballard, he can... Nack Ballard did... Um, reasonably well when the first engines were going out there and i do believe he did he was he's the only human to ever beat an engine he beat an engine called jellyfish in a hundred point match um but after that it was it was since then the engines have gotten to a point where no no human can can hold a candle and it's not because of the checker play even though uh, even though a computer can outplay and does outplay any human in checker play once it comes to cube handling the mechanism by which you double in backgammon. Again, something that for a game that has been around for 4,000 years, the doubling cube in backgammon has been around for less than 100. The doubling cube was invented by uh, by somebody, I forget his name, he was like a Russian prince or something who was uh, living in the in the lower, in the in New York. Um, the hotbed of of uh, backgammon activity in the at the turn of the uh, 20th century in the early 1900s was the Lower East Side. And he invented the doubling cube. He, it wasn't a cube at the time, but he invented this. You know, it worked the same way. You can raise the stakes. You can, just like you in poker, when you raise in backgammon, you have that option too. At any point during the game, if the cube has not yet been turned, one player can say to the other, I offer you to double the stakes of the match. That player can either then accept, just like calling a raise in poker, and then the game is played at double the stakes, or he can pass, and then the game is over, and the uh, the player who doubled wins one point, whatever you're playing for, a dollar a point, a thousand dollars a point, doesn't really matter, you get a point. If the player accepts the double and is holding the cube at two, he can then redouble later in the game. Uh, backgammon is a very violent and very volatile game. Uh, small things can happen that completely change the game in the matter of a couple of rolls, and then all of a sudden the player that was at a disadvantage who accepted the cube at two can now redouble to four and then the other player has to either accept to lose two points or continue to play the game at quadruple the points this is where um human humans are just crushed by computers and artificial intelligence um cube theory is the most complicated and most difficult thing in backgammon and this is where um uh, the combination of brute force math combined with a neural network, is so deadly for artificial intelligence backgammon bots. They can see the future with cube handling in ways that most humans can't, because there's, in all, all humans, actually. Uh, in the beginning, when you had human players that did have 30, 40, even 50 years of experience with the game, even the neural networks did not have enough experience uh, to handle the cube as well as a professional human. Now, it's like there's there's no human alive that has played as much backgammon as the neural network engines do because they play every day. 
all day. That's all they do. And there is no way a human could ever understand the abstractness of in, in positions that a computer can when deciding whether or not to take a cube. Because the computer has seen this exact position a thousand times, 10,000 times, 100,000 times before. And you just can't compete with that. So checkers was beaten. And then chess was beaten. And then backgammon was beaten. All games that were previously unbeatable by a computer that are now easily solved by a computer. Okay, so what's next? There aren't that many other um, completely open games known. There was a uh, there was a computer programmer that invented a game called Armina. Now this was not this was not a popular game because the game was only created for one reason. He saw Kasparov lose to Deep Blue in 1997 and said, "Well, fuck, I'm going to make a game that the only point of the game." I mean, some people think it's a fun game to play. I understand the game, and I am not interested in it at all. I'm just, just doesn't, doesn't, the, the point of the game was let me make a game that is so abstract and has so many possible um, variables and can still be played on a chessboard using chess pieces, but yet will be almost impossible for a computer to solve. Um, so basically one of the things about one of the biggest differences between chess and Armina is in Armina, you can arrange your initial pieces any way you want in the back two rows to begin the game. Obviously in chess, there's no flexibility at all. You got the pawns, rooks on the outside, um, knights, bishops, uh, and the king and the queen. I mean, that's it. You got to put the pieces that way in Armina. You can mix and match the pieces any way you want. So that's a big problem for computers because you're making the possible outcomes in a game so much more valuable, so many more different things that can happen. There are positions that are just impossible on chess because of the opening structure and the limitations on the way the pieces can move. Not so in Armina. You've just increased that by, you know, logarithmically. And um, it took about 10 years. Uh, and there was a cash prize offered, but people were really doing it just to see if it could be done, and it was. I believe Armina was solved um, or the top player, the top human player in the world was beaten. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. I think it was, you know, two or three years ago. So, okay. Checkers, done. Easy. Chess, done. A little harder, but they got it done. Backgammon, uh, took another 97, it took another eight years for a computer to beat backgammon, the top player in backgammon. That was done. Armina, uh, after... It was invented in the early 2000s. It took about 10 years. So all that is left is Go. Now Go, in comparing it to chess, uh, because because it's while it's very different than chess, it's it's probably the next best thing to compare it to, uh, just because of the, the 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 how many just just how how many different kinds of positions are possible um, in chess. You're playing on an 8x8 eight eight board with pieces that can only do certain things, right? And start in a certain way. So there are X number of possible positions in a game of chess. It's a lot. Whatever it is. With Go, you're playing on a 19x19 19 19 board. So a much larger board. You're talking about in chess, 
There are 64 squares on the board. In Go, there's about two. Um, there's about 400 squares on the board, but it, it's even more complicated than that because in chess, you put a piece in the middle of the square. There are only 64 possible places on the board to put a piece. And some of those pieces can't even go in that board in those, in those, you know, pawns can't move backwards, you know, in go, you put your pieces on the intersections, not in the middle, but on the intersections. So now I have to, uh, fuck should have had this mapped on to begin with. So instead of 400 possible places, so fuck, how do I do this? Uh, this is me not doing my homework before I talk about something possible. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Of go pieces positions. <laughs> I'm probably not going to get it. Uh, yeah, I'm not getting the answer that I want. But you, uh, hopefully, I'm I'm painting the picture properly. It's a 19 by 19 board, but you don't put your pieces in the middle. You put your pieces on the intersection. So it's it's a ridiculous number of places on the board that you can put your pieces. Here's the other thing with Go. When you start, there are no pieces at all on the board. And you can take, it's either you're playing white or black, white stones or black stones. You can put your stone anywhere you want on the board. Anywhere. There are no restrictions whatsoever. So... Games typically take much longer. Um, you know, the these latest games between the AlphaGo engine versus Lisa Duel took anywhere between three and five hours per match. But you can understand why. Um, if you work it out, the number of possible positions in a game of Go is actually much more than there are atoms in the universe. And it's a lot more. And if you to compare it to chess, the number of it's you know, the number of positions on a chessboard is far less than the number of atoms in, in the universe. There just aren't that many possible positions in a game of chess as there are in a game of Go. So people have been playing this game for 3,000 years. In order to become a top-level Go player, it's your whole life. Um, and it is a game that's popular enough in Asia where these guys and women who get to the top of the uh, in, into the into the professional playing circuit, you can make a you can make a good living at it. In fact, if you're one of the top players, you can uh, you can be a multimillionaire. Now, what makes Go so much different than chess is that it is this flexibility of being able to do whatever you want, wherever you want, and the game is not a violent one. The backgammon is the most violent game that I that I know. There is no game that awards aggression. And as long as you're and taking chances, as long as they are aggressively motivated, no game awards you more than backgammon. It is a brutal, violent, volatile game. Chess also awards aggression. Obviously, the point of the game is to kill the king, right? So you have to be aggressive at some point. But during uh, the middle of the game, it's much more important to concentrate on position. Uh, in Go, aggression is a part of the game, and you can certainly capture pieces and take them off the board. But in the in the course of a game, 
where you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of moves, it's very unlikely for a player to have captured more than three or four stones compared to chess where uh, of the of the 32 pieces, it's not uncommon to see most of them be captured in a game of backgammon, not uncommon to see, um, you know, six, eight, 10 pieces in, in, a, in just a simple quick game get a, get hit or which is the equivalent of capturing, I suppose, in backgammon. Um, it's rare in Go. It's a part of the game, but it's not that important. What's important is carving out a territory because that is ultimately, yes, if you capture one of your opponent's stones, you get some points that count towards your, your total score at the end, but it that is a very minor thing. What's important is that you capture territory. Capturing territory is a, is 100 times more important than capturing capturing just a few actual stones. So throughout the course of a game, which uh, like I said, they're long, you start to see patterns of certain territories, territories being captured by one color, others being captured by the other. And then there are fights that do break out over uh, other parts of the territory. This, this happens more in the middle. What'll typically happen in a, in a go game um, one player will lay, lay claim to one corner, the other player will lay, lay claim pro usually to the opposite corner, and then the other two um, will kind of get split, and then and then a battle for the middle begins. And and, and 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 you know, from my perspective, which is probably the 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 exact same perspective as as most of you out there, actually, as a complete novice and a complete someone who's completely new to the game, I only studied the game. I always I knew the game, I knew the concepts of it, and I knew there are hardly any rules, uh, which also makes it difficult for a computer that you know you could just kind of do anything you want, save a couple. Like there's like three rules and go. There's it's almost no rules at all. So it's easy to learn. You can learn how to play Go in five minutes, and then if you're lucky, you'll be halfway decent fifty years later. Um and in all likelihood, if you do study the game for fifty years you won't really be that good at it at all compared to the professionals. So I did study the game a little bit more for about a week because I knew about this AlphaGo engine. Now here, here's, here's what happened uh, with AlphaGo. Um, this company called DeepMind, which is a British company, was bought a couple of years ago by Google. And DeepMind was trying to make this artificial intelligence engine for the game of Go, which every everyone told them at the time was, well, I hope you're patient because you're at least 10 years away from even beginning to think about beating a top human player. Um, as poorly as brute, uh, just a simple brute force engine would work in backgammon, it would be even more worthless in Go because the concepts in Go for capturing territories are so abstract because of the freedom of the game. Control of a section of the board in chess is relatively simple. I'm not saying it's easy to play, but the concepts are very simple. You have pieces that are good at doing it. You know what they can do. You know where they're generally going to be. And you can build uh, a computer that knows how to do that fairly easily. When you're dealing with a, a, a a game where the number of places you can put a checker on a board that's already more than twice the size. I mean, it's 
the concepts behind it are so abstract and so based upon just just intuition and just having played the, the game so much it's it, a neural network is necessary and that's what they did with go they started with, with the neural network approach and now they've got google money so um that as much as anything probably uh was why they were able to accomplish you know beating a top human in uh not 10 years but you know just a handful so the first major challenge that AlphaGo pay, uh, placed to a human professional was in October. Uh, they played a gentleman, I, I forget his name, but they played a guy. Now, um, just so you understand, in, in Go, the players are ranked the same way that they are in martial arts. Like when you are a black belt in martial arts, usually after you get your black belt, you can get to various ranks of black belt. It usually goes from first dan to ninth dan. Just about all martial arts are like this. So there are nine different types of black belt once you get into, once you once you are a black belt in a martial art. The same goes in Go. Once you reach the professional level, you are considered a one dan, just a one dan in Go. And then it goes to two, three, all the way up to nine, right? There are not a lot of nine dan players in the world. Uh, I don't know the exact number, uh, I'd be very surprised if it was over 100. So what Google first did was they challenged a two-dan player, a professional player, for sure. However, in terms of his world ranking at the time, he was like in the top 250 players. So of course, certainly, now that I think about it, if a two-dan professional Go player is in the top 250 players in the world, you know, there couldn't possibly be 100 nine dan players it's probably very rare i don't know somebody could you could look it up if you're interested but the, they're very few anyway first challenge a two dan player someone who's very accomplished but still only in the top 250 of all professional players in the world and google uh the google uh alpha go crushed this player it was um a sweep it was five zero uh the human player didn't hold a candle but the professionals who were watching the game you know, said, yeah, fine, uh, Google crushed this guy, but they were able to look at the game and see how many just poor errors that AlphaGo made that a 9-dan professional would never make. And they said at this time, uh, Google, uh, you're still the better part of 10 years away from beating a 9-dan professional. Look at all the errors you made. Look how sloppily you played. And you only were able to do it, you, you were only able to win because... A, the player you were playing wasn't really able to capitalize enough and you were good enough in the fundamentals of the game enough that you were able to slowly um, inch back and despite your mistakes, capture more territory than this good, but in terms of professional players, unremarkable human. So Google said, fine, let's go for, let's go for a big guy. And they, uh, they challenged a nine Dan player by the name of Lee Sodul. Now, in the past, Lee Sodul has been the number one player in the world, but as of at, at the time when they started the match against AlphaGo, he was probably a top five player. Certainly no slouch. This is a guy who is a, a certifiable Go genius, top five player in the world. One of the best who has ever lived in the history of the game. 
every single professional player said the same thing. Said, by judging by the way that AlphaGo played in October, there is absolutely no way that Google will even win one game against Lee Sodul. They were horribly, horribly mistaken. And it became apparent from the first game that this was a very different AlphaGo. And whatever they're doing to make the computer better, the difference between AlphaGo in October versus AlphaGo in March was just a, a complete, complete different machine. The final result of the game was, uh, you know, they were going to play to five no matter what. Obviously, you win three games, you win the series, you're the winner. Um, after three games, AlphaGo was up 3-0, so the contest was over in terms of a winner, but they had agreed in advance no matter what to play all five games. The final score of the match was 4-1 to one AlphaGo. Um, I watched game one, game two, and game three. Um, I did not watch game four, which I regret, but I just figured, well, it's over, and this is probably going to sweep. The most interesting game probably was the fourth game. Now, in the first three games, um, the human really only at very small points in the game had anywhere near what would be called an advantage. So it was clobbered in, in the first three games. It was, it was a massacre. Now in the fourth game, um, now these players, they have to play with a clock. Now the clock is much more an issue for the human than it is for the computer. The computer can more quickly play out, you know, the next 20 moves, which you have to do and go. You have to play out for one move. Okay, so you're con you're considering this one move. You've got to play out the tree as it goes for the next 20 moves. Okay, so that's one move. Now you got to do it for the second move you're considering. So if you're considering five different moves at 20 different, you know, progressions that go through it, it takes a long time. Computer can do it much quicker. This is where the brute force that's available to a, to a computer is so valuable, assuming it understands positional play, which is much more dependent on a neural network. So the human, Lisa Duhl, was in the first three games getting into a lot of time problems, and he was running very low on the clock, which affected, towards the end of the game, his, his ability uh, to make good decisions. He had to make his decisions much more quicker than he wanted to. So what happened in game four was Lisa Duhl did something uh, that was dangerous, and, and he did it because I think he was at the point where he knew he had nothing to lose. He spent a full 40 minutes, 40 minutes went by and he did not play a move and then finally did so. He literally sat there and worked out, God, how many different moves that are, were available to him, you know, reasonable moves that he could play and took 40 minutes to choose one. And when he chose that one move, now keep in mind, this is, this was, you know, I think the live stream, you know, I was watching it on Google with an American amateur commentator and, a, and an American nine Dan professional. Um, this American nine Dan professional, uh, by the way, his name is uh, Michael Redmond is the first and only person not born in the East. He's the only person born in the history of, of go in the Western hemisphere who has a nine Dan rating. So 
he's really fucking good, right? And he's the only native speaking English, native English speaking human who has ever um, gotten the top, uh, the top rank and go. So that's the stream I was watching because it was the only, you know, decent English one available with native English speakers. And he had no idea what was going on when Lisa Duel made that move that took him 40 minutes. And, you know, shit, this guy's got nothing to do. He's sitting there on the on the board and, and he's doing the same thing. He's doing it and he can actually has kind of an advantage because he can do it with physical pieces because it doesn't matter what his commentary board does. And he was sitting there and he was saying, OK, if he does this, this is how it plays out. And he was showing how the positions evolve. Um, that one move, I don't believe he even ever considered. In terms of all of the Asian commentators who are nine Dan professionals, only one considered the move that Lee Sodul eventually made. And that one commentator happened to be the number one Go player in the world. So out of all of these people watching the game, commentating, trying to figure out what's going on and what is taking Lee Sodul 40 minutes to figure out, only one other person came to the conclusion that it was the right move, and that is the number one guy in the world. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I think it's ZG or something like that. They're not too, um, yeah, they, they don't use many letters in their name. So only one other human came up with it. And here's what happened that was very interesting after Lee Sudul made that move. AlphaGo, um, I'm not sure if it was the next move or two moves after, uh, made a huge blunder. So AlphaGo was clearly unable to understand this move, nor were any of the other humans except one other guy. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew why this move was so good. Um, and neither did AlphaGo. And AlphaGo blundered the position almost immediately, and it was uh, it was downhill very quickly from there. And then some strange things started happening. Um, in the three prior matches, the AlphaGo engine had made in in the three matches with each which each, each match having hundreds of moves by each side. They estimated the AlphaGo really in those three matches. So, like we're talking about six or eight hundred, maybe even approaching a thousand moves, that Google only made minor errors twice, two or three times at most. Uh, AlphaGo played almost perfectly. In this fourth match, after Liso Duel made the that move that was uh I, I think the um the commentator who was the best player in the world, GG, uh when he made it, when Liso Duel made that move, I think he characterized it into something that would loosely translate into the hand of God. Uh not to be confused with Diego Maradona's uh handball. <laughs> um he, he characterized it as an otherworldly play that, you know, just takes very, very deep understanding of the game that clearly AlphaGo did not have. So, like I said, we're talking about three mistakes in the match by AlphaGo over the better part of a thousand moves leading up to this point. After that point, AlphaGo started to blunder left and right. It was a shit show. It's almost as if like AlphaGo got like hacked and someone was telling it to make terrible moves because AlphaGo, it's like it's short circuited and it just, it's brain exploded because throughout the rest of the match, it was just a shit show. I mean, it was uh, not even close. Uh, 
after that one move that took Lisa Duel 40, 40 minutes to figure out, AlphaGo just melted down and lost in spectacular fashion. fashion. Now, there are people that are uh, the, probably the best analysis of why this was happening was that after Lisa Duel made the hand of God move and AlphaGo blundered immediately afterwards, what AlphaGo does is it's, it's able to uh, probably better than a human assess what the chances are of it actually winning the game. And the only thing that AlphaGo cares about is winning. It doesn't matter. They, AlphaGo doesn't care if it wins by a half a point or if it wins by 20 points. It just wants to lock in the win. So at this point, after Lee Sudul made that move and AlphaGo blundered, um, it wasn't hard for anyone to figure out, including AlphaGo, uh, AlphaGo the least, but you know, any professional knew AlphaGo is in serious trouble here. The chances of AlphaGo winning this match after that move and blunder combination are very, very low. Oh, excuse me. Are very, very low. So what they're theorizing that Google did with all of these wild Hail Marys all over the board was it knew it had such a low chance of winning that the best way it can try to salvage the match is by throwing all of these non-standard, really weird moves into the game in the hopes that Liso Duel would misplay one of them, which the chance of chances of a nine-dan professional misplaying are close to zero, but not zero. So AlphaGo knew it was it was worsening its position with every one of these so-called blunders, but if only Liso Duel could misplay one of them, then it could get back in the game. That's the theory behind why it appeared to be such a meltdown and its position worsened so much, whereas a human would have never... A human really probably would have just surrendered a lot earlier. Um, that did not happen. It took AlphaGo quite a while to surrender, and its position was uh, was in a ridiculous state at the time that it did. So then the fifth match came up. Now, unfortunately, you know, it was... Uh, it was played on Monday after daylight savings time. So while I was able to keep up with the matches over the weekend, uh, a match starting on Monday night at, I believe it started at 11.30 p.m. There was just no way for, for me to be able to, to watch another potentially five-hour match. But, um, uh, you know, it didn't work out for Lee Sodul. Uh, AlphaGo, again, played perfectly and won 4-1. So what's next? Um, what's next is the number one player in the world. Uh, immediately after the match, I think only a day a day later, the number one player in the world uh, challenged AlphaGo. AlphaGo, I'm sure, will accept this challenge, but not until it can let its own neural network, you know, actually analyze this game, especially the hand of God move, which obviously AlphaGo was not able to understand, did not react well to, and then, you know, caused the meltdown. They will... They will not play ZG until they understand, until the computer understands what happened in that move. And now they have a lot of nine-dan professionals helping them also. So what will happen? Um, it is, it's very unlikely that even the top player in the world will be able to win a game off of AlphaGo. Now, in the current state of AlphaGo, uh, the number five player in the world 
was able to take one game from AlphaGo, I'm sure Google is going to want at least a month or two, which every day the engine just grows stronger and stronger. And the computer will now understand the hand of God move before they ever accept the, uh, accept the challenge. So what are, what are the chances? So, so where are we with go? Has go been solved in the same way that checkers, chess, backgammon, Armina? No, because it hasn't bet it. it, it AlphaGo has not yet beat the number one player in the world. That will be the next match. What are the chances that the human can beat AlphaGo? Almost none. Because, I mean, we saw what happened in the number five player. The game, the the, the engine is only, is going to be, you know, like 50 times stronger by the time the match happens. And, you know, but hey, that's why you got to play the games. I mean, everyone was saying before this match, there's no way that Google can possibly... Uh, beat even one game off of this number five human and Google fucking killed it. Now everyone's saying there's no way a human can, 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 can beat go, can beat AlphaGo, but we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, I don't know if Vegas handicaps these things, but they should. No, I'm sure. Well, listen, Asians love gambling. So I'm sure there's a great sports book that you can look at to see what the chances are. But I, I personally don't see it now. What's so, Everyone who is listening now, um, if there is, if there are, you know, in the audience, if there are two or three people that seriously play Go, I'd be shocked. So you're probably asking yourself, you know, why should I care about this? And well, you probably shouldn't. But what I can tell you is if you are somebody who just does enjoy playing games, as much as it is impossible for a newbie, much less an amateur, to really follow and understand what would be happening in a game like this, I put those matches on, the three that I watched, and I watched them start to finish, and I was glued to that YouTube stream. And part of that is because the commentary was just fantastic from the guy who's a nine-damn professional, um, um, Michael Redmond, did a really good job of really laying out and explaining what was happening. And you can enjoy this. This is really something that if you're interested in this sort of thing, you can enjoy it without having a deep understanding of the game because the game is very, it is very aesthetic and you can just take a big picture, look at the game, not so much in the middle, uh, not so much in the beginning or the middle, but once the, once the middle of the game is really rolling you can really have an appreciation for what's going on and what territories are white and which ones are ta are black. And what I find so beautiful about the game is that you really can see that it is a game of structures forming and either being alive or dead. So when white or black is trying to grow their stones into a cohesive living organism, there will be resistance from the other side and it will it will end in life or death where either white is alive and black cannot grow anymore so they are dead that doesn't mean they leave the board it just means that structure cannot grow anymore it's dead and it's alive so you have after a couple hundred moves you have this series of living organisms on a board that are either growing or that are stopped and died. And I found it beautiful. 
even with only a, a bare bones understanding of the game, I found it really beautiful and captivating to watch. And this is for a game where it takes usually 10 minutes between moves that might be hard for you to believe. And it might not be true for you, but it was for me. And if you found any interest in this, I don't know how long I've been talking, but if you found this even remotely interesting, I would recommend whenever that match happens, AlphaGo against ZG, um, I do recommend you at least give it a try. If not, watching from the very beginning of the match, um, watch a replay where you can skip forward an hour or so and see if it see if it floats your boat. It did it for me. I mean, I was I was on the edge of my seat for every move, you know. And this is we're talking about a Friday and Saturday night in New York. I could probably have a pretty easy time finding something very exciting to do. But instead, I chose to sit on my couch and watch a computer play a game that I don't know very well and was entertained for every minute. It's worth a shot is all I'm saying. So what, is, what does this really mean? Is it's, I, I mean, how interesting is it really that a computer is able to beat a game that nobody plays, at least not in the West? Well, that's not that interesting. What is interesting is that unlike Deep Blue, that IBM IBM made Deep Blue to do one thing and one thing only, play chess. There were no applications for the technology that they created besides that one function. AlphaGo is a little bit different. Google is not going to buy a company for the amount of money that they did, which was an astronomical amount of money, because they're interested in beating a 3,000-year-old game of glorified checkers, you know? And that's actually really rude to characterize the game in that way. Um, but still, Google is not interested in paying hundreds of millions of dollars to beat an obscure, by Western standards, board game. There are a lot of applications for the neural network and for the Monte Carlo tree that is in AlphaGo to be used for other things. They're already pointing towards uh, biotechnology, um, amongst other things, that this engine can be used for other things. So that's why it's a little bit interesting. It's also interesting because um, they're saying it could be useful for other games. Now, the one game, well, not just one, there are, there are several poker variants that are solved by computers, but several that are not. For example, a computer can play games like Stud and Raz, which is a game of lowball stud, um, other limit games, that is, pardon me, that is games that, sorry guys, okay there. So there are several types of poker where there is incomplete information, like stud, where some of the information is hidden, some of it is, but more is available than is hidden. And computers are pretty good at beating those games especially if they are limit games where the amount that you can bet per straight or per you know new card that is that is drawn uh, is a fixed amount. Uh, computers have been very good at those games. Uh, computers have been very bad at games like No Limit Hold'em, where even though the amount of concealed information is relatively small, you can bet whatever you want whenever. Computers have a very hard time with this. The concept of bluffing is difficult for um, for a computer. Um, 
the it gets into things like risk assessment and computers are just have a very hard time with it and still have had a very hard time and AlphaGo has said um that you know we have our sights on games like No Limit Hold'em that have not yet been solved by a computer so i mean that's really it i mean in terms of board games with complete information that's pretty much it i mean the, uh, assuming that Google will beat the number one Go player, and they probably will. If they don't do it on the first time, I mean, if they don't do it on the second match, I'll eat my hat. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's at this point a foregone conclusion. Games of partially con concealed information um, that have a no-limit betting structure are going to be harder, and that should be interesting. Um, I would love to see a poker tournament where AlphaGo enters a large tournament. You know, can it keep its head above water? I don't. I don't know. It's something that's never been done before. It's certainly nothing that a computer's been... Uh, the only... the only. Um, I, if you guys are familiar with, uh, with, I think, Phil Locke and one other player uh, played against an artificial intelligence game, Heads Up, meaning head-to-head -head poker, um, and the computer was able to win at limit, but not at no limit. So, you know, the first thing it would start with is AlphaGo versus, you know, a, a human professional poker player at heads up no limit. And then I guess from there go into a full ring game and then from there go into tournaments and see what would happen. It'd be interesting. I can promise you it will be the same thing that will happen that that will happen in 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 poker as has happened in chess and backgammon. Now, when you go back into the seventies, eighties, nineties, back when nobody thought there was a computer that could beat chess or that could beat backgammon, um, a computer actually beating it, it's like a nail in the coffin to the game. In 1997, chess was still a game that was watched on an international scale. The top matches were, were a big deal. When Bobby Fischer was playing Kasparov and and um, and uh, Karapov, I, I think is the other, th those were games that everybody watched. This was on regular TV, big time. Once Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, the interest in chess plummeted. Once a computer can beat it, people are a lot less interested in it. I don't know what the psychology is behind that, but I know it's something that happened because it's the same thing that happened in backgammon. Backgammon, a gambling game, uh, was enormously po popular in the 70s. Now, the, the popularity had at least started to go down when you know they started building engines, but once once the engine beat you know the top guys in backgammon, in the uh, in the early 2000s, I mean, that killed the game. I mean, you used to be able to find online action. Now, why would you play Backgammon online? Anyone with a free Backgammon engine will be able to crush you online. Why would you ever play that for money? You wouldn't, and nobody does. And if you do, you're an idiot, because just why? Why put yourself at risk to somebody who can easily use a computer just to, to, take, to take your money? And, that to, and now Backgammon is a shell of what it was. Uh, very little interest in the game compared to just a couple of decades ago. Um, Go is a different story. There will always be interest in Asia with Go because most of the time it's going to be people, you know, who play the game in person. Although it is played a lot online, it's not. It's not really a gambling game. It is more of a just a. It's more like chess. Now poker is another story. Now poker has gone through some hard times of late, especially in this country of playing online. Although you can play online if you live in the state of. Uh, Nevada or New Jersey, and elsewhere in the world, you can play re relatively freely. Um, 
I promise you that if there is an artificial intelligence engine who can crack No Limit Hold'em, that game will die as well. All, at least, at least certainly for online play, it will kill it. That industry will die. And rightly so. Why would you play online if you're going to be playing against the computer? I mean, all those, all those variants of, of poker that are, you know, Raz and Stud and, you know, the, the simpler limit games, you know, there's no action on that. No, no high limit action on that, at least. And because people know that you could be playing against a computer. People aren't afraid of that with no limit hold'em because there is no such thing as a, as a computer who, who can really crush it. I promise you it will kill online poker if that happens. Not that it's in such great, great shape, but um, it'll be, it, it's interesting. I think artificial intelligence is fascinating. This is uh, one of those rare instances where you can see it uh, in the flush, so to speak, playing out live in front of you. Um, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, okay, two more uh, topics. First, if you're a fan of banging your head violently into a brick wall, then I highly recommend that you watch the trailer for the new Ghostbusters movie. Now, everybody, listen, if you if you haven't seen the original Ghostbusters, you know, just just see it. I mean, I, I can't imagine there are that many humans that have not seen this movie. It is, in my opinion, prove me wrong here. Give a reasonable alternative for the best sci-fi comedy of all time. Can you even, I, I thought for a long time, does anything even come close? The only thing in terms of a sci-fi comedy that I could even mention in the same sentence as Ghostbusters would have to be Spaceballs. Spaceballs was fucking awesome. Is it as good as Ghostbusters? Hell no. I can't think of you know, whatever is second. If it's not Spaceballs, it's a country mile away. I mean, it's the best. Ghostbusters is the best sci-fi comedy ever made, full stop. And if something comes close, I want to see it, you know, because I, I don't know about it. Ghostbusters 2 is a disappointment, still fun. It was all right. And I completely understand why after that, that specifically Bill Murray wanted nothing to do with it again. I've been told that there is actually... Um, there's actually a video game. I don't know what platform it was for, but the Ghostbusters video game, I'm told has uh, you know voice acting from the original four uh, actors and a pretty good storyline. Now, listen, I've been told, you know, and Dan Aykroyd has said, you know, the Ghostbusters video game that we made and they were involved in the script and the voice acting, et cetera, et cetera. I've been told that, you know, and there you can go on YouTube and you can actually watch the video, you know, if you play the video game perfectly, how it plays out. Dan Aykroyd says, if you watch that whole thing, that is the Ghostbusters 3 movie. And I'm told it's very good. Uh, quite frankly, I am not interested in watching a video game on YouTube, which completely uh, undermines the last 40 minutes of Go that I've been talking about. But whatever. Ghostbusters is the fucking best sci-fi movie ever, right? Okay. Now they're doing a reboot. They're not doing Ghostbusters 3. They're doing Ghostbusters 2016. So that is something that could be exciting, right? Think of all the, you know, how much special effects have, have, have progressed in 30 years. 
how awesome that could be. Uh, okay, so when I hear that, I'm interested. And then I saw the trailer. And then my forehead met the brick wall about 20 times. It is so fucking painful. This movie will be a complete abomination. It is not because they have replaced the four male Ghostbusters with four female Ghostbusters. That's not why. It's because those characters that happen to be female are done in such a pandering, childlike, cartoonish, just such a predictable way that it's it just it, it listen i watched that trailer it turned my stomach not because they're women but because they are so incredibly unfunny now granted have i seen the whole movie no but you know when they put out a trailer they're going to try to put out you know a couple of the really good zingers you know a couple of the really good funny parts right you're going to try you're going to try to sell some tickets right it was so unfunny and so cringeworthy. The worst of all of them. I'm not sure if it's the, the, you know, like each, you know, they're the same characters as the male Ghostbusters. You know, you had uh, Bill Murray, who was the bad boy, you know, breaks all the rules guy. You had uh, Eon, who's the uh, the tight, you know, science guy who, you know, makes everything happen. You had Ackroyd, who's the, the clumsy guy with the heart of gold. And then you had uh, the black guy who's, you know, not a scientist, but just the solid dude who's funny, you know? You got those four, the first three, the, the, the three white guys that they made into three white girls, you know, are the same, just not funny. But what they did with the black woman in the new Ghostbusters is so fucking disgusting. And the first Ghostbusters, what was his name? Um... What was the black guy's name in the first Ghostbusters? Not a, uh, not the actor. Forgot what his name was. Anyway, um, you know, shame on me. I should remember, but I, I if, you know, I haven't seen Ghostbusters in about ten years. Uh, yeah, token. That's funny. No, uh, it, whatever his name. He was just. He wasn't any kind of like black stereotype. He was just the dude. He happened to be black. Walked in. And he's just like, I, I want a job. I'm just here. I'm, I want this job and I want to do it well. And it wasn't like he was like some court, some sort of, you know, Amos and Andy type. No, he was just like happened to be a black guy who was solid dude and funny as hell, right? In the new Ghostbusters, this woman they have, this black woman they have playing the role, it is so fucking disgusting. It's like, I ain't no scientist, but I know the streets of New York. It's like, that wasn't what the black guy was in the original Ghostbusters. What are you doing this for? It's like, now the new, the, the oh, no, you didn't. And, oh, I'm going to sass you so hard. It's just, it's, it's just fucking gross. Listen, I get what they were trying to do with this new Ghostbusters, make it appeal to feminists, make it appeal to women, whatever the fuck. But guess what? You played your card wrong. Because if you've listened to ClickBang for the last month or so, you actually understand what intersectional feminism is. You can't just bring up women. You have to bring up all the oppressed minorities as well. And when you take a black woman and cast her as a fucking stereotype, you know, 
the feminists, they don't like that. And, you know, they're actually right in this case. And they've been slamming Ghostbusters saying, how dare you fucking do this? I'm not looking at it from a feminine perspective. I'm just looking at it a, from a why perspective. Why does it have to go that way? Why can't she just, why, why does she have to be just, just the stereotypical black who doesn't know anything that has been, I thought we got that out of the movies. I thought that was actually a good accomplishment of of you know civil rights the black black people don't have to be cast in this way now you're making a movie that's supposed to be a feminist movie and you're making fucking mistake number one that even i know not to make and it's gross the way it was it's just so fucking it's like she's not a real it's not she's not even a real person she's like the real stereotypical black and it's gross you know even i find it offensive anyway this movie will i hope will just lose money hand over fist because you know selling this shit is it's just disgusting um i don't recommend that you watch the trailer but i did post and you can just you, you can either find it on my uh on my twitter or facebook or just go google it there is a great video that somebody made where it's the stay puffed marshmallow man you're you're just, you remember from the first episode the first ghostbusters obviously stay puffed marshmallow man one of the fucking greatest villains ever in, in a sci-fi comedy um he's just sitting at his computer watching the trailer so they just have the trailer in the bottom corner and you have the stay puff marshmallow man watching the trailer and getting completely outraged so if you're going to watch the trailer i recommend you watch it watching the stay puff marshmallow man watching it and thank you um stereo dreamer uh winton uh zedmore was the character in the original ghostbusters played by ernie hudson Um, yeah, another thing, if you do go back and I, I'm going to go back and rewatch Ghostbusters last time I watched it, I remember it also being, um, you know, it was the furthest thing possible from a political movie, but watch Ghostbusters again and just have libertarianism in the back of your mind. I think it's one of the most libertarian movies ever made without even saying a word about politics. Besides, I guess, calling the EPA guy dickless. <laughs> uh, last thing for the uh, evening. Now, I've been talking a lot about modern feminism in the past few episodes of ClickBang, but haven't really mentioned any of them by name. I'm going to now. This is probably uh, one of the worst uh, this is a truly evil woman. Her name is Anita Sarkeesian. For those of you uh, who are familiar with Gamergate, and I won't go into that story. That, that would take a full episode by itself. But um, she's rotten. She's rotten to the core. And that's how the whole Gamergate thing started. She said, you know, she's this intersectional feminist and famously said, everything is racist. Everything is sexist. Everything is problematic, and you have to point out everything. That is her life. And she does so in a very unscrupulous manner and has proven time and time again that she has no, she does not care about the welfare of women. She only cares about herself and only cares about, you know, she hates men. Uh, she's just an awful, vile character. Now, her claim to fame and the way she got lots and lots of money 
was she decided, despite the fact that she didn't play video games, didn't care about video games, decided that video games are sexist. And after there was, uh, you know, the way Gamergate started was there was this, uh, you know, there, it was exposed that there were, uh, people trading money and sex actually for good video game reviews. Um, and this was exposed and, you know, the, the reaction from feminists who by and large didn't really give a shit about video games was just to attack the entire video game uh, industry is misogynistic for properly calling out uh, this female game developer who made a shitty game who would fuck reporters for good reviews. And that's exactly what happened. And she got called out on it, rightly so. You, you know, these people expect to have a, a honest review. And when the author is getting paid with sex for a good review on a bad game, you know, people are like, what the fuck? Well, uh, all of a sudden feminists were very, you know, and me, I, I could give a fuck about video games. I, this is just something I don't care about at all. But, um, it was really disturbing to see, uh, this whole industry of, and this whole group of people who are passionate about video games being attacked for being what they weren't. And it got very ugly. Anyway, Anita, Anita Sarkeesian decided, well, what I'm going to do is I am going to, uh, she did, she, she, put out there what was uh, what seemed to be a very modest goal. I'm going to make five YouTube videos that expose how video games are not only sexist, but how somebody who isn't sexist, who plays video games, then becomes sexist in real life. Uh, you may have heard this story before just slightly differently. Do you remember when the reactionary right, when the religious right was attacking video games, saying that games that have all this gratuitous violence make people uh, violent people and we need to censor video games because of it? It's the same exact form of thinking. It's the same paradigm that the feminists are using. Now, never mind that there is no link, no causal link that has been scientifically demonstrated whatsoever that someone who is playing one of these violent games like Grand Theft Auto, where you can go and you can run amok and, you know, you can commit a felony every three seconds and violently assault people in Los Angeles. All that. There has been no, there's been shown no link whatsoever that this type of game will actually make someone violent in real life. Do you think that there is any link that, Video games with sexy damsels in distress or scantily clad female uh, heroines or, or, you know, women as wallpaper in the background. Do you think there's any link? Well, if, you know, no thinking person thinks that playing a game like that will actually make someone sexist in real life. In fact, the only evidence that exists regarding violence in video games and real life behavior is in people who already do have some violent tendencies in real life, it has been shown that if you allow them to play extremely violent video games, they are less likely to, to espouse, to, uh, to exhibit violent behavior in real life. That's the only link. It's a negative one. I mean, it's positive in terms of the fact that they are less, no, but these are people who are there. They studied, they're violent in real life. You let them play. It's like therapy for them. They get to act out their violent desires on a video game screen. And then when they walk the street, they are violent less. That's the only causal link. And certainly there is no causal link between sexism. But Anita Sarkeesian said, 
there is, and I'm going to prove it. And I'm going to make five YouTube videos. And she started a Kickstarter campaign or a GoFundMe or whatever the fuck. And she says, I'm going to make five videos. I need $6,000 to make it. So a modest goal, a modest amount of money. What happened? The feminists came out of the woodwork and supported her. And instead of raising $6,000, she raised, I think, close to one hundred dollars or $200,000. So now she had this modest goal of making five videos for $6,000. Now she has the same modest goal of making five videos, but she's got $200,000. What happened? That was over five years ago. I think it was at this point, I think it was six or seven years ago. She has made two videos. So you have this woman who asked for $6,000 to make five videos. And then, and she was going to make those five videos, I think in, in a year or less, she promised. So now five or more years pass by. Of that $200,000, she spent about 60 and only came up with two videos. So she has failed in the most spectacular fashion in, in delivering what she promised all of those backers. Now she said, well, I'm not doing video game stuff anymore. I'm going to make some new videos. And these are going to be about important women in history who have changed the course of history by doing things differently. Now, to me, that actually sounds like an interesting project. I would like to know about some of these women who have met, you know, and there's no doubt there are some women who laid their lives on the line, in some case lost them to achieve equal rights for women throughout the course of history. There are many of these women whose stories might not be that well told who deserve. I would watch that. That sounds like a good thing. And I thought to myself, when I heard about this, I said, well, the good news is, I guess, is that Anita Sarkeesian raised $200,000. So she can just take all that money that she didn't spend on making the other three videos that she promised everybody and make those videos instead. After all, her organization, Feminist Frequency, it's a nonprofit. You can see their, their tax returns and you can see from their tax returns that they have hundreds of thousands of dollars. They have like over $300,000 in their coffers just sitting there. So they could just take that and make these great videos about important women in, the history, in, in history that, that changed the world. But no, she's starting a new Kickstarter. It's not a Kickstarter. It's like a go seed me or some shit. Uh, believe me, I won't be sharing the link. And I, you know, I, it, I hope that nobody will be donating. Because she's already proved herself to be incompetent. And now she's saying, okay, to make these five videos or however many videos, I need another $200,000. Wow. Just wow. And she's already... Uh, She's gotten about 40 grand so far. Now, keep in mind, those first five videos, she said she only needed $6,000, happened to, you know, get 200000 and was only able to make two. Now, with $300,000 sitting in the bank, she's going to make another few videos, and she needs another 200000 She's already got the... So now, wh wh why? Why do you need this money? And who would even dream of giving a penny? She's proven herself to be completely incompetent. You will not find a more successful scam artist than this woman. And she's fucking rotten to the core to boot. So somebody uh, responded to this new uh, Anita Sarkeesian video campaign 
Uh, he's a guy on YouTube called The Amazing Atheist who uh, understands all too well the evil of intersectional feminism and particularly uh, the scam artist that Anita Sarkeesian is. And he said, you know what? Fuck this. I'm actually going to do my own Kickstarter campaign, but instead of talking about video games or important women in the history of, uh, of whatever, uh, mine's going to be real simple. There are women all over the world who are truly suffering, whether it be in countries that still have 80% genital mutilation for women to the women who, uh, who are not allowed to go to school or can't drive a car or who are just in big, in, in, in dozens of countries where women are literally still being oppressed in, in, a, in, a, in a terrible manner, I am going to raise money to give directly to them. Something that is truly and uh, objectively something that helps women. Uh, and in the same period of time, or, or even a little bit less, that Anita Sarkeesian has been able to raise $41,000 of her goal. Uh, this guy, the amazing atheist, his real name is uh, uh, Thomas Kirk, has raised uh, $71,000, $71,500. And this is being done with the, uh, he's raising money for the International Women's Health Coalition, uh, looking to do real things to help real women who are being shit on in a spectacular fashion, advancing the, the rights of adolescent girls, promoting comprehensive sexual education, ending child marriages and forced marriages, and ensuring safe and legal abortions. Okay? So there you have it. Yeah, um, yeah, John, if you haven't been listening recently, I've done a few shows at this point on modern feminism or intersectional feminism, and uh, I've just kind of woken up recently to the, the fucking heart. And you know what? Other people are waking up, too, as to what's going on in this, because, you know, this is something that's easy to ignore when you don't see it in your day-to-day -day life. But there's a lot of people who are seeing it every day and whose lives are being destroyed by it. This fight this battle is mostly being done on college campuses where these uh modern feminists have been extremely effective in getting exactly what they want getting people fired for no reason uh taking over campus and creating these ridiculous safe spaces uh changing the curriculum that's 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 uh that's allowed and you know just causing havoc uh that does no good for women that actually no good for women at all there's been a pushback. It's starting, and it's starting in a real way. I've talked in the past few episodes about what's been happening at the University of uh, Missouri, where the president was forced to, to resign, and you've had you know students being assaulted on campus just by trying to uh, cover what is legally legally right rightfully theirs to cover under the First Amendment. You know, people, student speakers being shut out of places, and all of this stuff. These ridiculous demands that they that, that they have, like just causing havoc and the university's largely crumbling and, and, you know, giving them whatever they want. So, you know, like I said, one of the most famous cases is what's been happening at the University of Missouri. Well, guess what happened? They had their biggest drop-off in new enrollment in, in, the, in the past decades. They usually, you know, usually what a college wants to do or university wants to do is they want to get more and more students every year so they have more and more revenue. 
so they can make more and more facilities and have a bigger campus and have better facilities and better teachers and et cetera, et cetera. Universities want to grow. This year, um, they have received a drop-off in 5%, and this has created a $30 million budget deficit. So this is unprecedented. You know, normally they're looking for growth of, you know, five to five percent or so every year would be very healthy, would be good. Um, even if they stay, you know, at you know, two or three percent, they can at least still buy new things and, you know, invest in their in their future. They've had a sudden drop off at five percent, and now they've got a huge multi-million dollar hole to fill. Uh the university will be objectively better, uh less well off to provide a good education to their students because they don't have the money anymore. And this is a result of what most normal people are sitting back. And if they're aware of this, and certainly if you're applying to universities, you are aware of what's going on. And you, if you're just a normal person are saying, I want nothing to do with getting an education at that school. Fuck that. I'll go somewhere else where they don't fucking have these fucking psychos running around campus causing havoc you know, demanding the final exams be canceled because they need to be do some sort of activism and teachers getting fired because they refuse to postpone final exams because people, their excuses, I, I need to do, I need to go do a protest. Listen, it's not the fucking, it, it, it's not the finals that are getting involved in your activism. It's the activism that's getting in the way of your fucking education. That's why you go to school. It's not to become a prof professional activist. It's to study something, learn something useful. Anyway. It's starting, um, and that is in an objective way that you know can be measured in dollars and cents, and it's happening elsewhere too. It's happening, uh, I think, in a very large and significant way in the political climate as it is now. I mean, people are aware enough of these psychos and the fact that, you know, five years ago, they could tell a joke at the water cooler that today result would result in a trip to human resources is that the most important thing in the world no but you know what this is how it happens it starts at the college level where they take over and they take over the ivory tower and these people what's important maybe you don't care about that because you know you're long past the age of going to college you should care about it if you have kids who are of age who are about to enter college i would say be very careful and where you send them, but you know, it, it's mostly not a part of your life, but then it does become a part of your life when these people who are taking these social sciences, the ones who are really good at it, go into politics. And then you have people like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama parroting these, you know, statistics that aren't true about gender pay gap. And, and what does that result in? Although you don't, you don't directly see it. It's money that comes out of your pocket because these new programs that they're that they're funding to solve problems that don't exist are funded by you. So you should care about it because you're paying for it. I think it's actually been much more so the water cooler part of it where people just realize they can't make the same jokes as they used to and they can't just speak their views plainly without being decried as sexist and racist and you you know there's these people who are having their businesses destroyed because they won't make a a, a, a fucking wedding cake with two grooms on it because they it's it's not something they want to do you know listen if i made a if, if i owned a cake baking shop 
I would love to make I would love to make a cape for, for for a gay marriage. But you know what? Those are my beliefs. I don't think a you know a Christian bakery should be forced to do it yet. They put these people out of business, and people are seeing these things happen more and more. Sometimes it's in their own life where they get scolded for being, and sometimes they see these you know people who mean no malice and are doing no wrong who are being chastised and all this stuff, and they see it. And I think this is the biggest explanation for the unbelievable amount of support that Donald Trump has been getting. Because this is the first time in a long, long time where you have a political candidate for president, no less. I mean, maybe you see it on the on the local level for for congressional seats, but you don't see it for you know for governors, for senators, and certainly not for president. You don't see this stuff where one guy just does not give a shit about being PC. Now, put aside all of the other stuff. Forget about the political beliefs, the, the you know, the the stuff you might agree or don't disagree. You've got to see that. You under everyone understands that and that's kind of the point that there are these people who were never really politically active and a lot of Trump's biggest supporters I think don't really even have any strong opinions on politics per se. They're just saying, I've had enough of this fucking PC bullshit. And what would be a better way to say, fuck you to these, they're not, li they're not liberals. They're regressives. People who are, who are, author listen, the protesters in the sixties who are liberal Democrats, they did a whole hell of a lot of good for free speech, free expression, and just getting ideas out there that were just obfuscated by the power by the power structure at the time. So I'm not saying all of the results were good, but a lot of them were great. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, you you have to admire the way that they embraced embraced free speech and got new ideas out there. Okay, whether or not you agreed with those ideas. Talking about new concepts is a good thing. This is the exact opposite of what the the quote unquote left. They're not really the left. There's the left. You know, you would think that looking at the political landscape today, that the Republican Party is more fractured, more fractured than the Democratic Party. It's really not. The left is much more fractured. You have people who are liberals who still believe in this free speech stuff, and they are the first ones to get attacked by the regressive left who seeks to shut down free speech more than anything first and foremost. Now they do it on college campuses first because it's easy for them. They know how to do it and they're effective and they're very, they're very good at it. Their next target is social media and they're doing really well with this. There's this new, uh, this new group of, of organizations on Twitter that are now involved with policing hate speech. Guess who one of those organizations is? Feminist frequency, none other than Anita Sarkeesian, and Twitter has already begun doing this. Facebook already is, is, is doing this, not as much as Twitter, but they're doing it also. And they're censoring conservative viewpoints. I'm not saying you should like conservative viewpoints. I don't like a lot of them, but I want to hear them. These people are authoritarian. They are the antithesis of what a liberal 20, 30 years ago was. They, see, they seek, first and foremost, to censor any speech that they don't like. When they don't like something, they call it offensive or repressive or even violent, you know? Whatever, they, and they're really good. So anyway, Donald Trump, I think, and again, I won't be voting for him, but I think 
this enormous support he's getting is really from people who have just had enough of PC being crammed down their throat. And if there was a candidate who is even less politically correct than Donald Trump, that's who'd be getting their vote. That's what I think it is. And that's where that's why I think the race is going the way it is. Normal people who just are sick of the shit are just, they just want a way to say, fuck you. And voting is a secret ballot. So finally, they they have an effective way to anonymously say, fuck you to the regressive left, which they don't even know what that means, but they know what it is. And they are saying, fuck you by the millions. I'm sure you've heard by now after uh, yesterday's results on, you know, what they usually call Super Tuesday 2. Trump fucking crushed it. It is going, you know, Rubio's out now. Jeb Bush is out now. Basically, you know, there's Kasich and, and, and Cruz. You know, there's there's nobody there. There's nobody left. The, the, the I mean, Cruz has a snowball's chance in hell at this point. You know, the, when I talked about Super Tuesday two weeks ago, I said it's pretty much a toss-up. After yesterday, March 15th, it's not a toss-up anymore. I think... Uh, Trump is at this point 90% to get the nomination, especially now that there are some winner-take-all states like New Jersey and New York, who he's he's probably going to crush it in. I mean, it's going to be really hard. And the the Republican establishment has no one left. They wanted Jeb. They were willing to go with Rubio. Now Cruz, they want they don't like Cruz. He was on he was on shit list at the same position as, as Trump probably when all this started. Now they're like, well, we got to have this. They are in such a panic right now. They are in such a horrible state. And that I love watching. I love it when either of the two parties and as far as Sanders and Clinton is concerned, it's over. I mean, it's over more so than it's over for, uh, you know, the Republicans with Trump. That's it. Uh, Clinton is now in a position where she can just kind of roll back. She doesn't have to fight against Sanders anymore. He has no chance. It's over. Doesn't have to spend a dime on advertising against him and can just uh, concentrate. Well, I think she should concentrate on her uh, email scandal and fight that any way she can. But other than that, she's got to concentrate on uh, on Donald Trump. So she can allocate her resources much more effectively now. Anyway, getting back to the Republican side, it's... I just love to see it. I love to see this 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 establishment fucking monster just get railroaded and to see them in complete disarray and complete dysfunction. I would have liked it more if it was Rand Paul doing that, but that didn't happen. We have Donald Trump. And yes, I do hope he wins the nomination because it would be the biggest fuck you to, politi- to political correctness and a simultaneously double fuck you to the RNC.